Hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, Sarah takes a trip to university to hear how league tables are incentivizing academics to get to grips with sustainability. Um, the People and Planet League is run by a student campaigning organisation who very intelligently spotted that the way that the university sector was going is that the thing that vice-chancellors and executive bodies lose sleep over is league table positions. We reflect on DEFRA's latest Tech Alliance sustainability initiative with one of the member groups involved. DEFRA had a number of goals in this initiative. They wanted to create a digital and physical environment in which its employees and other agencies and the public could work well together. And we learn about the role that energy storage can play in meeting net zero as part of a master's series with EDF Energy. It's a question of uh, different factors uh, that needs to uh, help uh, together to make uh, battery storage becoming, uh, I would say, a normal reflex for anyone who is looking at uh, supporting uh, a net zero journey. So yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. It's just Edie's content editor Matt Mace in the studio today. Uh, we had our sustainability leaders drinks last night and rumour has it there's a few sore heads and absentees as a result. It's also Black Friday, or a great Friday if you're an Arsenal fan like myself, which means that Sarah is at her desk working on a piece about how unsustainable the day is. In fact... We actually have a Green Friday feature on the site right now, so well done to companies like Everlane, Allbirds, eSpares, GiftGaff and of course Patagonia for doing something a bit different with the planet in mind for today's event and do go check that out once you finish listening to this episode. But we're not actually going to be focusing on consumerism at all this episode, which come to think of it is a bit of an oversight on whoever plans our podcast, which... Yeah, it, it's me. Um, but we are going to be delivering free, high-quality interviews regardless. Later on, we'll be hearing from the sponsors of our new Energy Storage Master Series, EDF Energy, to find out how battery storage is becoming a viable option for business, especially those with net-zero aspirations. We'll also be hearing from printing company Xerox's Vice President of Environment, Health, Safety and Sustainability, Wendy Latko, to discuss a new DEFRA-led initiative bringing together businesses, NGOs and policymakers in a joint ambition to making the UK's IT sector more sustainable. But for the first half of this episode, we're actually handing over to senior reporter Sarah George. And notice there that I put an emphasis on senior there because Sarah has deservedly earned herself a promotion. So well done, Sarah. And to celebrate, she's headed somewhere that students and academics with an interest in sustainability will be very intrigued about. Hello. So as I'm sure we will have said in the introduction to this podcast, I have just arrived at the University of Gloucester for a tour today and somehow managed to find a quiet room. Um, I'm here because this university was ranked first in People and Planet League's table of the UK's most sustainable and ethical universities. Gloucester is the only university to have held a top 10 spot in this particular ranking since it was created. Um, and that's actually something you can see pretty obviously as you approach the campus. So the first thing that I saw as I came up was a rewilding and nature conservation project. Um, when I got a bit closer, also this really impressive rooftop solar 
array and everywhere there are signs talking about the sustainability credentials of the university. Um, if you're listening and you're not from the education sector and you're thinking, oh, this seems a bit a bit niche, um, I'd like to point out why I think universities are so interesting in the sustainable business space. So like most companies, they'll have environmental impacts through their facilities, the way in which they procure things, um, the products that they sell and the services that they offer. And like any business, they'll have to communicate their green approaches with many stakeholders, including um, existing staff, visitors and prospective staff and students and local authorities, as well as other organisations within the local area. Hopefully we'll get some strong takeaways no matter what size or sector your organisation is in. Uh, so without further ado, I'm off to tour the university's new business school with its Director of Sustainability, Dr Alex Ryan. Right, so as I mentioned, I have made a bit of a trek today. I'm here at the University of Gloucestershire um, with Dr Alex Ryan, who is Sustainability Director here, and we have just had the chance to recaffeinate um, <laughs> ahead of our chat. How are you doing, Alex? Brilliant. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to have you here. And I'm glad we could meet at uh, the building that we're in and uh, talk to some of the people who are living and working in this building and trying to bring the sustainability game alive here. No, me too. And I was going to ask, so this is your first time on the podcast, as mm, far as I'm aware. Yeah, so thank I'll... you for inviting <laughs> us. It's very exciting, actually, because we were just been talking about, um, you know, the presence of the universities as a sector in the sustainability space. And, you know, it's a great treat actually to be one of the voices that can come and tell you a bit about how we're trying to live mm -hmm. and breathe it so mm -hmm. thank you no you're more than welcome so I was going to ask about like what's your journey been at the uni so how long have you been here um where did you come from before that um and who do you work alongside okay well the who do we work alongside is everybody so that's a huge question let's keep <laughs> that one um, but first of all so I mean I'm uh, potentially quite a curious fish in terms of a sustainability director because I do not come from an environmental management or sustainability professional background. I'm actually an academic by background. Um, however, I occupy the management role of sustainability in our university and the reason it's like that is something we could talk about, if you like, because there's something about leading this agenda within a university environment where um, more normally you would find the sustainability function welded into the estates and facilities department. Yes. And you would find an environmental manager by background or the carbon expert or someone who has come from that more technical environmental background and they would be leading the agenda but they would lead, be leading it out from the operational part of the university community and that can be quite a, an issue because they can get a bit trapped there whereas if you've got what this university has always done very deliberately which is to actually position the agenda centrally not within the estates and facilities part position it centrally and also have the capability of the lead person be one mm -hmm. that straddles management strategy and academic expertise so that actually we can lead and coordinate with some credibility right across 
both parts of the house, as it were, mm -hmm. because universities do kind of run on two different systems and two yes. sides of the house. So having an approach that can cut across is really important. I've been here 10 years um, and I was in the original sustainability team um, when it was set up just over 10 years ago. This university has actually been working on sustainability for more than 25 years, um, but we raised our game just over 10 years ago and made it a decided corporate strategic priority and allocated some resource to build and bring in a small team that would deliver a strategy to actually engage and progressively improve practice right across all aspects, so operational but also teaching research partnerships, etc. Mm -hmm. No, that's one of the interesting things I find, that when you go on the sustainability page of the website, it says, oh, this is our team, and it has your name down uh -huh. along your, alongside your direct colleagues, but then it also says... Oh, this by the way, this team touches the vice chancellor, the vice chair of the council, yeah. the dean of academic development, yeah. the director of estates. It's a very long sentence. The yeah. contracts and procurement <laughs> manager, head of facilities, health and safety manager, and head of maintenance. So it seems like there's a lot of accountability and a lot of embedding going yes. in there in that structure. That's right. And those are only what I would call almost the nuclear family. You know, there's the kind of extended family of of different change agents right across different parts of the university. And obviously, we're just somewhere on a journey. Just to get a bit X factor for a moment. But um, yes, the approach here is one of having the small team, having it intelligently positioned so that it can enact strategy and empower others through matrix working mm -hmm. so that we can actually progressively reach across to all different parts. And, you know, we adopt different ways of working with different professional functions and academic specialist groups within the university according to where they are and what their core work is. So the team's capabilities, the sustainability team's capabilities are very deliberately set so that they've got that ability to be interpreters, translators, brokers, to sort of have a little bit of expertise that they'll bring to bring support but also to challenge and to try and encourage our colleagues to then progressively embed it into their own specialisms and their own responsibilities. Mm -hmm. No, and as you mentioned, there is a lot of overlap with how this mm. would look in a business mm. as well. I'm talking to businesses on this mm. when you ask them about challenges. A lot of them are engaging the board, talking to the higher-ups. Mm. So when I looked at the team, mm. I thought it was really interesting that the vice-chancellor was was on there and I wanted to ask a bit more about how mm. that that works and how that has helped you yeah. guys on on your mission yeah so it's a good place to start I mean you, you know if we start at the top um, we'll eventually get all round to all the berries and birds on the tree <laughs> but um yeah I mean having a vice chancellor as the CEO of a university as someone who is committed to the agenda obviously is very very important one of the um, really um, critical pieces in why the vice chancellor's commitment is important is that the vice chancellor is the CEO and you know analogous to other organizations they are held to account by the governing body so mm -hmm. there's a governor there's a senior governing body and a senior finance committee of the university that has an externality to it and they are the ones mm -hmm. who will hold the vice chancellor to his KPIs for the year 
um, and therefore the Vice-Chancellor is a key linking point with our governing body. I mean, I have a relationship with the Chair and Vice-Chair of the governing body as well, and the Vice-Chair is our sustainability champion on the Council, so that's one of the ways that we have that link point from our strategy into the Council, so that when Council are looking and from a governance perspective and advising and steering in their capacity, that they actually understand the implementation of sustainability on the ground. Um, but the Vice-Chancellor actually chooses his own KPIs and has chosen that one of his annual KPIs for reporting to Council will be our um, ranking in the Sustainability League tables. Mm -hmm. So thankfully we're in a good spot at the minute. <laughs> but that's a quite critical thing actually to have your Vice-Chancellor as CEO to have chosen sustainability as one of the high-level KPIs mm -hmm. for the whole organisation. Mm -hmm. No, and you mentioned the, the table, and that's obviously why mm. I pitched to come here in the first first mm. instance. So for anyone that hasn't seen it on the website, we covered People and Planet League's um, University League, as we do mm. every year. Um, and Gloucestershire is the one university in the UK that has been in the top 10 of this league since the first table was published in 2007. Um, and this year it got first place. I thought that I was going to be the only journalist <laughs> writing about this but I actually saw <laughs> saw this in nationals as well yeah, um, yeah. and this is a message that's really clearly on on the website so I wanted mm. to get your view on whether you think that students and academics when they choose to come here to study and work are they are they looking for that is it a differentiator well that's the really um current conversation now mm -hmm. which has barely been tackled in this sector because really the university sector I would say in the last sort of 10 to 15 years since the beginnings of engagement in the sustainability agenda has moved quite a long way in terms of embedding into strategy and policy making core commitments um, providing some resource for sustainability teams um, but still quite a lot of the engagement is at a purely operational level and it is the core environmental management practices that you would find being looked at and tackled in any organization um, where our sector has begun the journey but still has a really long way to go is in asking the fundamental paradigm shifting question of what is the core business of this organisation? We are educators and researchers. So if we do not have a strategy to embed this progressively across the core research and teaching experience, we are really in serious danger as universities of focusing endlessly on the target and completely missing the point of sustainability and the integration of it into an organisation. So. Our university in particular set out very early on that agenda and, and made our reputation actually for pioneering the development of sustainability in the curriculum as a very integral, deep commitment that mm -hmm. we will gradually build through as we replenish and design our courses mm -hmm. and also as we go about different research projects. And, you know, the People and Planet League that you referred to, I mean, obviously we're chuffed to bits to be at number one at the moment in that league because that league's been going also about 10 years now and 
the league itself has become interesting and more chewy and more challenging. In the early days, it was an opt-in, optional process. And then um, it had a, a sort of change of gear about five years ago and became a mandatory process. Right. So now every single university is assessed on exactly the same criteria. And, and there, there are no criteria. Uh -huh. And they've improved and sharpened the criteria to reflect how well the sector has moved along and the fact that certain things are kind of taken for granted now. Um, you know, you'll have a carbon plan, you might try and sort your, your waste out, etc., etc., and to try and stretch the sector a bit further. Um, so the, the league exercise itself has become more challenging and therefore we're even more proud when we get to stay in a good position in the league. But also I think one of the things that's really important about this particular league, People and Planet League, is number one, it's actually led by students. And not a lot of people know that. Um, the People and Planet League is run by a student campaigning organisation who very intelligently spotted that the way that the university sector was going is that the thing that vice-chancellors and executive bodies lose sleep over is league table positions. So they decided to play the university sector at their own game in order to challenge them and bring the change mm -hmm. and make it something catalytic. And it absolutely has been. And so what's really important for us, because we care very, very much actually about where our students are at in this agenda. So hearing the voice of students in terms of an indexing exercise that has been chosen by students is great. And the People and Planet League really is one that still is assessing um, whether universities really walk their talk, not just on operations, but on the learning experience and mm -hmm. the partnerships and all the aspects of university life. There are other league tables out there internationally um, that, and I'm not going to name them, but <laughs> that could be accused of benchmarking and assessing not everything that actually is going to lead to paradigm change or even allowing universities to game this agenda and badge certain things up that are look a bit flashy but aren't actually achieving a fundamental change. I feel like you find that in any sector. Yeah, and it's the same, you know, in, in just 10 to 15 years, the university sector now has that mm -hmm. range of different measures, range of different, and a lot of, you know, there is gaming and greenwashing out there. Um, so just to come back to your question, though, about... Uh, there's so many facets to this, but about where the students are in terms of are they looking for this yet? Are they seeking it yet? We think that in the last couple of years, now that universities have actually got some good practice to show off which in this very new space around what does sustainability look like as a course experience or as a research agenda, now that there are things to look at and point to and say that's what it looks like, we're starting to see a pickup and a slight change of atmosphere in what students are telling us about what they're looking for. Mm. So for instance, just very small scale research internally for us um, last year, down in the freeform comments um, of one of our annual surveys, we found that students are starting to point to the sustainability commitment as more important than the nightlife factor for the first time. Oh that's kind of new. Yeah. I know, and it's really interesting. And, I mean, the National Union of Students have been doing surveys for quite a number of years now. They've now surveyed tens of thousands of students at all levels of study and in all um, different course specialisms. And they find a really high percentile, way up in the 80% regularly every year, 
that where students are saying not only we not not only that we want it as a core corporate commitment by our university we want to see them being a responsible organization and walking their talk but also we want to see it in core course experience we want to see projects we want to see it not just as an isolated module but right across the course we want an employment experience and a placement in it and so that um, national data and it's increasingly becoming more of an international data set now as well that is showing us that at a sector level there is appetite there and for us as one university what's really interesting now is how closely we're working with our comms and marketing team to understand now just how do we actually get the story across to mm. students that we're actually developing something really funky here yeah. and nobody quite knows what this looks like yet so I found it really interesting we were with one of our great um, partners interface um, two days ago and they kindly put on an MBA specialist seminar for our MBA students and through the course of the Q&A element of that seminar some of the MBA students were asking Interface a bit about the um, comms and marketing challenge. And I mean, I personally really look up to Interface because I really enjoy their comms. I think they're doing it well, and it's always a permanent struggle for us. But John, if was, you're listening, John, if this you're is listening, a shout-out for you, yeah, specifically. Giving you the props, John and Lou <laughs> and everybody at Interface. But it was very interesting hearing them say that actually even as, in my eyes, real specialists who are getting it right and who I learn from, that actually for them as a business, the comms space is really interesting and challenging still. And I've found, you know, the more and more that we're working with business partners in our region on this, they are talking us to, uh, to us a lot about how one of the challenging spaces is in the customer relationship and how do we build the appetite in customers so that they will request sustainability in their spec of something that's been procured and designed in. And for us in the university, it's a similar thing. Sustainability is new, so when you're trying to market it, you're also trying to educate and explain, whilst you also test appetite and work out how to market it. So this, but this is a very, very live and new thing for universities to be even asking the question, how can we authentically promote this? rather than just, you know, slap some global goals badges on everything and pretend it's all solved, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do know. Yeah. And that's <laughs> something we talk about with almost every sector that we mm. talk with. And I think that it comes into what you said, how it normally sits in the facilities management. Mm. Um, but you mentioned that while your facilities and your buildings obviously have a footprint, mm. your core service, the thing that will last, the thing that mm. you do the most of, is, is the teaching. So to yeah. get it out of one and into the other while still touching all those points and without greenwashing it's obviously mm. no small small feat mm, that's right we've got to have a very um clever strategy in order to really go about a process of engaging a university community in all its forms and flavors mm -hmm. in an agenda like this because universities you know have two different parts of life running in the same at the same time there's a sort of you know the more operational side of the business and then there's the academic life of the flow of mm -hmm. a business year and they both run at the same time and they have very different constituencies and universities basically are modeled as organizations on democratic principles which means you know there's an interesting way of distributing resource and arguing over that resource and allocating that resource so the the change strategy has to be quite clever in order to 
understand the different parts of the puzzle, engage in a relevant way with different stakeholders and teams and functions, but also look for the the really smart opportunities that are going to get you a catalytic moment mm -hmm. where you get to scale up and move forward. Yeah. Um, but like you say, all of that, we're trying to really map and understand our impact in terms of all the ripples and the waves of it. And of course, ultimately, our biggest legacy will be the graduates we send in the world because they will be changing professions of the future. They'll be carrying this stuff forward. So if we're not getting it right for them, again, focus on the target, missing the point. Well, I feel like there's probably no better way to end this segment than with a look to the future. And obviously, future jobs is something we talk about um, a lot and which I'm seeing come up a lot more in events and conversations um, that I'm having. So best of luck with, with all of that. Alex, and can I just ask, what, what's your next big project? Um, I think, I mean, I don't know so much about next big project, but two of the agendas that are the most interesting to us at the moment are, number one is our partnerships work. One of the things that we're finding more and more interesting and exciting as we get along this journey is the range of different partners that we are able to build bridges with mm -hmm. and that can be you know businesses like we've we've given an interface a mention in in this podcast because we've been doing some really interesting work with them but um, on a completely other level we have just for example found over the last year or so a great alliance with our cathedral locally Gloucester Cathedral who happened to share a real sense of what we in universities call the third mission. We have mm -hmm. teaching, research and the third mission, which is outreach and en engagement. And when we look at that aspect of our work, which we do um, under the banner of a, being a UN centre of expertise in sustainability education, we're looking to collaborate with people within our region so that we can take learning, professional development and collaboration forward for sustainability. And meanwhile, down the road at Gloucester Cathedral, we've got they've got an amazing project going on there called Project Pilgrim, where they've put the biggest solar array on any religious building in... Uh, I think it's either the whole of Europe or the world. Um, you might actually want to go and visit them next. It's incredible. <laughs> they take you up on the roof. It's amazing. Um, but also with that, they've got all of the trip and bottom line approach in there. They're trying to revitalize core mission for the cathedral. They're trying to really speak to the social sustainability and the equalities and justice aspects by really serving the local community. And their triple bottom line approach and ours actually fits beautifully and we've been finding incredible things to, to start working on together. So. You know, from the big um, businesses to big cultural institutions and then right down to very grassroots work with SMEs, small charities, the range of partnerships and collaborations that are building up for us around this agenda are just fascinating. Of course, we're very applied, we're very, you know, industry relevant in how we do teaching and research here. So we love to do that kind of work that's collaborative and, and co-creating the agenda with a regional focus. Yeah, and just building on that, I know you mentioned, while we weren't recording, this idea of brain print over footprint, which I feel is really interesting because we're seeing a lot of companies doing life cycle analysis, um, full cycle footprinting. So could you talk us through this, this idea instead? Yes. Uh, it's one of those daft strapline things, Sarah, but, you know, there's something really, really important about understanding what it is to have an impact for sustainability when you are a provider of education. 
you know, sustainability as an agenda is quite often seen as something that is about the science and the technical solutions. And it's very, very easy to miss that actually sustainability is a human capability thing. It's never going to go anywhere unless we get it into that human development piece because it is we humans who will be going along the chain struggling to apply this massive mission to the world. And so, you know, any organisation then looks at things like trying to get it into HR strategy, for instance, so mm -hmm. that it's in the workforce. For a university, we've got to get it into our student experience. If we haven't done that, then for one, we've done our students a complete disservice. We have not prepared them properly for the world they are inheriting and the industries they are going into that desperately need change. And so therefore, when we're looking at uh, the business question of value chain, when I'm building a sustainability strategy within my university, part of the value chain is going to be the operational stuff and looking at financial efficiencies and cost savings and all of those things. Another part is going to be the, the sort of almost the outward facing, the positive profiling, being a force for good, working with great partners. But if we haven't actually put it into our core service, which is teaching and research, then we have actually failed. We've failed on course sustainability strategy, we've failed on mission, and we've failed on purpose. And so that's why our sustainability strategy has always been serious about a really fundamental rethink of curriculum experience so that we are really giving our students what they need mm -hmm. for the future by embedding this properly and helping them to think differently and take this forward. So brain pin more than footprint any day of the week. Right, well I better go because clearly I need to get up on the roof of that cathedral yeah. as soon as possible yeah. before my train goes. <laughs> um, no but thank you so much for being on the podcast today Alec. Thank you. And now back over to Matt in the ED studio. So thank you to Sarah for her in-depth tour just there. And before we crack on with our next guest, we are going to be having a little bit of a sit-down with the sponsors uh, for not just this podcast episode, but also a master series that we have been running on the ED website. EDF Energy are running uh, the master series with us. Um, and if you're a frequent visitor to the site, you'll have noticed and hopefully downloaded the new energy storage guide uh, that they worked uh they worked on with us. Um, there's also a new energy storage case study set to be published next week and a free online masterclass webinar, again supported by EDF Energy, which gives ED readers and listeners now everything they need to know when it comes to utilising energy storage technology, what it means, uh, where it may work for uh, in their organisations and the legislative and policy frameworks uh, around the issue. That webinar, by the way, is taking place on the 17th of December at 1pm, so please do register uh, for that. And ahead of that webinar, we're going to be speaking to uh, Vincent Derule, Director of Energy Solutions at EDF Energy. Uh, Vincent is responsible for the development and sales of all energy solutions for business customers, and that includes uh, some technology such as energy, uh, energy monitoring, energy efficiency, demand side response, uh, storage and electric vehicles. And as mentioned, it's going to be the the storage aspect that we're focusing on today. So Vincent, thank you very much for joining me today. And why don't we start um, with a little bit of you explaining 
um, you know, why you decided that this master series and, and the relative formats are, are really important for our audience. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Matt, and thank you for uh, having me uh, today. So I, I think what is, uh, what is important is, is really to um, make the, uh, the people understanding uh, how important is the, um, the, the, uh, the storage, I would say, if it's the, because it's the, the topic of, of today. Uh, but uh, as you said, uh, the storage is one part of, um, of uh, what needs to become our future uh, energy industry, and in particular, if we want to aim to, uh, to net zero targets, uh, which is uh, which is now uh, something which we have to deliver. Um, I, I would say that EDF Energy is, is keen to make sure that we are sharing our experience, sharing our understanding, uh, sharing also uh, everything we are developing in terms of uh, learning and uh, and also case study uh, to show that um, not only it is it is critical to be able to uh, to support the delivering of a net zero journey for uh, for the, the UK businesses. But it is also something which is achievable, and, and there are some concrete and simple steps that can be taken in order to be able to deliver that. Uh, and storage is definitely part uh, part of this uh, of this journey. Great stuff. And I was I was doing a bit of reading up on the site before this, and and uh, one of the articles we wrote earlier this year was uh, it was a study from Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance, which basically found that energy storage installations they're poised for a 122 fold increase. Uh, between now and 2040, so 10 years before the UK's net zero target. Um, and that's basically through demand due to renewable energy and electric vehicle uptake and obviously the falling costs of, of the technology uh, itself. And, and at ED, we've seen a lot of business investment into both renewables and electric vehicles, but storage, it kind of remains a, a bit elusive in terms of the businesses we're talking to at the very least. So, so why do you think that, that, that storage, you know, I think we're probably still having the same conversation now that we did two years ago, as, as in a lot of businesses are kind of waiting for that moment to really sink their teeth into the technology. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's a, it's a, it's a question of uh, different factors uh, that needs to uh, help uh, together to make uh, battery storage becoming, uh, I would say, a normal reflex for anyone who is looking at uh, supporting a, a net zero journey. Um, one of them is definitely uh, the, uh, the improvement of the technology. Um, when I say improvement of the technology, is both the, the, the investment, the price which is going down, and, and the performance which are, uh, which are increasing. Uh, and when you are in a, in a fast-moving uh, environment where this technology is improving every day uh, and you are in a long-term investment for this kind of project, you always wonder if it's the right time to do the investment or if you'd better wait a little bit more to, to make sure that uh, uh, you can have the, the, the last best, um, I would say, uh, balance between uh, price and, and performance. Um, another element which is uh, very important is also long-term stability in, in the regulation and in the pricing. Um, probably what, what we see today is that uh, there are a lot of uh, questions and, and sometimes decisions um, that are not necessarily making a business case for, uh, for a battery storage as good as it could be. Uh, and I think this is also creating some, some, um, some anxiety from, uh, from an investor point of view uh, because, because, of course, when you invest in, a, in, a, in such an asset, you want to make sure that there is, a, that there is a, in front of that enough revenue on a long-term basis to, uh, to repay for the investment. Um, and if you compare to, uh, to PV and, and EV, because you mentioned these two, uh, these two ones, PV is something which is completely uh, embedded in, in anybody's mind as, as a contributor to a net zero journey. So it's something which is 
and, and for a long time has been uh, has been part of the uh, energy uh, environment. I would say, EV is is something which is uh, I would say there is there is a net zero contribution to it. Of course, uh, definitely that's that's absolutely clear. But it's also an asset or, or something that people are buying, uh, and and so it's something that you would consider to have in your home or for your businesses when you are when you have a fleet which is part of your capability to, to move yourself to, to, uh, to, to go to, from one place to another. And you choose the low carbon uh, version of that, so the net zero version of that, to, to, uh, to, um, to be able to transport things or, or, or people. A battery storage, uh, in that case, would be a static capability to store energy. And it's not necessarily answering to any critical needs of a business. Uh, while it's a critical asset, it's a critical capability for, for delivering a net zero, uh, because if you are bringing uh, more and more renewable on the market, uh, on, on the um, uh, capability to generate renewable uh, energy on the market, which means that you are bringing instability and you are bringing difficulty to forecast uh, and to balance this energy. And so the, the capability to store energy is absolutely key to, uh, to be able to, uh, to support us in, uh, in a net, in net zero uh, uh, transformation. So storage is less obvious. Uh, there are some technical challenges, some regulatory challenges, but it's definitely something that needs to be part of, uh, of the big picture in terms of uh, capability to reach a net zero agenda. Okay, well, that was that was actually my next question, the, the role it can play Sorry. in net zero. But you've, you've, no, no, it's brilliant. You've gone along and uh, answered that for me. Uh, anyway, um, and earlier on on this podcast episode, uh, we, we've heard a case on how kind of sustainability and energy uh, management, it needs to be taken out of one department, taken out of a silo and become... Uh, more embedded um, and you've touched on a a few of the I don't, not barriers but challenges that energy storage needs to overcome in terms of uh, policy and, and, and cost um, I'm guessing there's also a kind of a, a skills challenge there as well so as more people become aware of energy storage what kind of skills do, does a business need to equip its staff with to make sure that they can make the most of, of uh, energy and battery storage uh, technology so it's it's a um, it's a very good question because um, when you speak about the skills, I think it's it's always uh, trying to understand whether these are skills that you need to develop on your own. So do you need to develop these skills for yourself because this is part of something that you need to deliver yourself, or is it something that you expect someone else, a partner, to to develop in terms of skills? Um, and, and that would be the business of this partner that will help you to deliver as much value as possible from, um, from, um, from this opportunity or from a, a battery storage project, um, as it is the case uh, today. Um, so, so the skills are definitely the understanding of the, of the energy market. If you, if you want to be able to create value from a battery storage proposition, you need to understand the energy market. You need to understand, when I say the energy market is both um, what are the opportunities in terms of uh, ancillary services and grid services that the battery is able to, uh, to contribute to, but is also the capability for, uh, for this battery to be optimized against the wholesale market, so capability to trade the asset um, in, in a different possible way um, as part of, a, of, of an energy trading uh, service. So it's, it's a really, uh, I would say, an energy market understanding, which is absolutely key. And again, back to my question initially, is it something that a business needs to develop internally or to rely on, on a partner uh, like EDF Energy uh, to bring these uh, this skills and these capabilities? 
I, I would say, uh, in terms of skill, there is also the, the uh, understanding, which is more uh, a skill that would need to develop on, on the site on what is the potential impact of a battery on the electrical uh, structure of a, of a factory if you install a, a battery behind the meter on the site of a, of a B2B customer. So is there any impact or what are the uh, precautions and, and protection that you need to have in place in order to make sure that the, uh, the battery uh, will have no impact on, um, on your business or uh, ideally the only impact that the battery may have is the capability to support uh, and to increase, to improve the uh, reliability of, uh, of, your, uh, of your supply because it's bringing some, uh, some capability to deliver energy if there is any issue with the grid. So I would say there are some technical skills, there are some, some energy market understanding skills, potentially also uh, understanding the, the, the policy and regulation um, part of that to, uh, in order to anticipate uh, what could be the next uh, market or the next move that you need to, uh, to be able to play with uh, in terms of energy optimization. Uh, and so definitely these are things that exist in some part of the business. Uh, and I would say the, the biggest question for, uh, for someone who wants to move to a, to a battery storage proposition is whether they want to develop these skills internally or they want to rely on, on uh, some partner to, uh, to bring them uh, to them and to, uh, to support them in, uh, in making this happen. And, and just honing in on that, that aspect of, you know, taking energy management, taking sustainability, taking the, the climate crisis out of one department. Um, from my very limited understanding of, of battery storage, it seems like this is a good technology to do that. I mean, the, the upfront capex obviously means that, you know, the, the finance department is quite heavily involved and the economic opportunities that it can bring through, you know, um, you know, sending renewables back to the grid at optimal times means that this is a good opportunity to view energy through the lens of something else rather than just green. It's, it's, it's a good economic opportunity as well. So yeah, it, it is absolutely, uh, and and, um, and and I would say that uh, it's it's um, so it's a good opportunity. It's still challenging with some uncertainty uh, due to, uh, as, I said, as I mentioned before, uh, uncertainty on on what will be the, uh, or sometimes uh, even there is certainty on on what will be the uh, the next uh, regulatory change. Um, so, but it's something that, uh, as as a, as a business in EDF Energy, we strongly believe that there is a, there is a, a strong economic cases in in having a battery uh, storage proposition for uh, for INC customers. Um, it's something that is not seen from a, from an EDF Energy point of view because the EDF group uh, has developed uh, what we call a storage plan. Uh, last year, in order to uh, contribute in bringing more and more uh, assets on, on the on the grid, so asset uh, being a battery storage asset, um, and and more recently, uh, EDF Energy uh, has invested in the UK in in Pivot Power, which is a company that um, is actually uh, uh, developing project and investing in uh, in battery storage, so grid scale battery, uh, again to contribute to the uh, to the uh, grid stability. Okay. Uh... That's brilliant, Vincent. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And of course, we'll also be hearing from you again on December 17th for that online masterclass, which takes place at 1pm. So please, if you're listening, do check the ED website and the accompanying link to this podcast for more information to register for that. Vincent, just while I've got you then, we're a month, we're a month out from 2020. I'd like to get your views on what you, what you know you would like to get from 2020 in relation to energy storage. You know, your one if you could have a big wish around energy storage in 2020 to you know overcome some of the challenges, what what would that be? 
Uh, definitely for uh, EDF Energy to uh, have a portfolio of battery storage being optimized by our PowerShift platform, which is a decent one. So we have a, a good grid scale in front of the meter battery storage under optimization already. I think the next step is really to be able to bring battery behind the meter, so on the side of the customer, smaller battery from uh, 300 kilowatt to uh, a couple of megawatt, I would say. So my, uh, my ambition for 2020 is to have a, a few megawatts of these batteries installed and under management by EDF Energy. Okay, brilliant. Hopefully Edie will be able to uh, report on that success story at some point uh, next year as well. Uh, Vincent, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Matt. So it's time for the final guest on this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Last month, the DEFRA eSustainability Alliance was launched a coalition of 16 organisations which the government already works with either in a supply capacity or as an NGO partner. The Alliance will be producing regular blogs for DEFRA outlining best practice advice on the ways in which IT firms of all sizes can minimise their environmental impacts and how non-IT businesses can use digital technologies to drive progress towards the sustainable development goals. So the founding members of the Alliance are Axelos, uh, the UN Environment Programme, the Responsible Business Alliance, ATOS, ARC, Xerox, HPE, Capgemini, Dell, IBM, Vodafone, Microsoft, WWF and N2S. And Sarah has grabbed some time with one of the organisations. The next speaker for our podcast is Wendy Latko, who is the VP for Environment, Health, Safety and Sustainability um, at Xerox, who is talking to us on the same week that DEFRA has launched its e-sustainability um, alliance. So I had the pleasure to go along to that launch at the Natural History Museum. So Wendy, thank you for joining me and being flexible with that. Sure, I'm happy to be here, Sarah. Thank you. Um, great, and we've we've covered the alliance on on the website. And for those who might not have seen it, it's a coalition of sixteen organisations that are working with the government um, from the IT and the NGO um, spaces. And the coalition is meant to promote, collect, share, and implement best practice um, in a way that action is aligned to the two key frameworks: so the UN SDGs and Defra's twenty five year um, environment plan. And obviously, Xerox is a service provider to the government itself. But I wanted to ask Wendy what what the value is in taking part of in this kind of scheme beyond building that relationship with a client. What do you think the business is taking part and will will get from this and be able to give to other businesses in the tech sector and beyond? So I think there's a couple really valuable outcomes of a, a collaboration like this. And I do think that this sort of partnership is really, you know, a, a perfect scenario of how the public and private sector can work together. Um, you know, companies like Xerox and the others who uh, participate in the alliance are all like-minded in that they are striving to improve their, both their own environmental footprint and the footprint of their clients as well. Mm. And by us all working together, coming at it from slightly different angles, we're able to share a lot of best practices and leverage knowledge that the others have. And with the, the guidance and the reach of DEFRA to establish the guide, it collects those best practices in one place and makes them accessible to such a broad segment of society. Mm. 
No, and that guide is open open source, obviously. And from from what I understand from Defra's side of things, the companies taking part, including yourselves, are, are going to be building on that with blogs. Yeah, I expect that all the companies will give a, a fair amount of attention to to this guide. It is a, I think, sort of the first of its kind in terms of bringing together all of the different pieces of IT from a technological standpoint and sharing those best practices relating to sustainability. So there's a lot of value in it, and I'm sure that our colleagues and our other and the other participating companies as well as ourselves want to make sure that that gets a lot of visibility because it is such an important need. Mm. And one of the things you talked about at, at the launch was about how Xerox is actually working on DEFRA to use tech to improve its own sustainability um, performance and you gave a really handy overview of how DEFRA is using y- your intelligent workplace services at the moment and what the impact of that's been um, and I was wondering if you would mind um, recapping that for, for the listeners of the podcast. Sure it's a really exciting project and we are just finishing up the final implementation of it. So earlier this year we launched what we call our intelligent workplace solutions which is a cloud-based print services solution. And DEFRA was one of the first clients to pilot that solution. Mm. DEFRA had a number of goals in this initiative. They wanted to create a digital and physical environment in which its employees and other agencies and the public could work well together. It was really important that they are able to be responsive rather than rigid. Mm. They also want to shift the way they connect, collaborate, and protect their data. And finally, and you know, perhaps most importantly, utilize more sustainable work processes. True to the definition of sustainability, not only from an environmental standpoint, but also from an economic and social standpoint. So the way IWS fits into this is that Xerox's intelligent workplace services is meant to advance the way employees and technology work together. It goes beyond the traditional managed print services which is where we would manage companies' print infrastructure on-site for them. Mm -hmm. And it allows workplaces to seamlessly navigate the intersection of both the physical and the digital with a continuum of services. So one of the key focuses of, of this program, of this solution, is that it meets the needs of a much more diverse and ever evolving workforce compared to the workforce of a few years ago. Another important aspect aspect is that IWS uses data and analytics to save money on print infrastructure, increase employee productivity, reduce security concerns, and create a more intelligent workplace because it has the needed data to make decisions right at its fingertips. So in terms of the specifics of the DEFRA case study, as many of your listeners know probably, DEFRA has over 20,000 staff across a multitude of agencies. The printing solution that we put in place for them has over a thousand devices across more than 200 locations in the UK. So it's really decentralized. Yeah, it is a very decentralized Mm. operation. And another unique or important aspect of DEFRA's work locations is that in many cases, people from various agencies are co-located in the same facility or they may work remotely uh, or in a fixed office. So we need to be able to accommodate all of those different work styles. 
Also, there are multiple generations of employees who have, and multiple job functions who have different data needs, who have different technology uh, experiences and different devices that they're working on. So the bottom line is we need to be able to support employees and others who work in the organization who have the need to communicate, print, and access information where and when they want it. The common goal that we developed with DevRel is to create smarter, more seamless ways to make content information available to everyone in the organization cost-effectively in an agile environment with sustainability benefits that were both quantifiable but also qualitatively able to be assessed. So the solution, as I mentioned, was fully transitioned just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, we are collecting data, for example, on the energy consumption of their printing on the various devices, and we'll be tracking that over time and working with them on ways to reduce the energy footprint of their print infrastructure. Also, DEFRA has signed on to another service offering through us called Print Relief, which is a partnership that we have with an independent third party that allows an company to offset the impact of their printed pages by reforestation projects. Mm. It's a third-party verified program so that we're sure that uh, trees are truly being planted where they say they're going to be planted. And in about the year that Xerox has been participating in this program, we have offset, our clients have offset over a billion pages to the result of over 100,000 trees being planted. And we're excited that DEFRA will be participating in that program as well. Great, you stole the words out of my mouth because the last thing that we t spoke with um, Xerox about was when Print Relief um, just launched. And I, I'm sure that it will have gotten a lot of attention um, with things like biodiversity net gain being discussed um, for businesses here in the UK and with, with the Amazon fires, so good to hear that it's been going well. Yes, it's been a very successful program. Um, and that's all of the big questions I had. I just, I just wanted to ask Wendy. I know you've come over from from the states for for this week. Are you are you heading back soon, or are you staying in the UK for a bit? I I am treating myself to a couple extra days in the UK to do a little bit of sightseeing. I'm enjoying the beautiful city of London. Uh, as you mentioned, it's often cloudy here, but it's still beautiful, and I'm looking forward to spending Saturday, my weekend day, uh, seeing some of the sights. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time out um, to chat with us in that, and enjoy your weekend in London. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. So that's about it for today's episode. Uh, so a big thank you to all our guests for their insight, and in some cases, hospitality. We'll be back in a few weeks with the last episode of 2019, which is not a sad occasion because that of course means it's going to be a Christmas special. So join the entire ED team, hopefully, for some festive chats, exclusive interviews and maybe even a quiz or two, which would be nice. Do please remember to um, subscribe to our channels on both Spotify and iTunes so you're always up to date with the latest podcast episodes and of course be sure to check out the ED website for all the latest news features blogs and information around the world of business sustainability but until next time it's goodbye <laughs>